verses 12 to 26 of Acts chapter 1. be helpful also to have this uh, outline which you received as you came in. Uh, in the middle of that gives us a bit of uh, uh, pointers as to where we're going. Now lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that we can uh, gather around your word this morning. Uh, we thank you that you speak to us in your word. We pray, Father, that as we uh, consider it, uh, that you will speak to each one of our hearts and give us the warnings and encouragements that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the joys of being in pastoral ministry is that people ask me questions from time to time. It's good because it gets me thinking, so it's good for me. It's good for them because they're able to discuss uh, the, uh, the issue. And it's good for you because I learn what the issues are that we need to address in sermons. One of the questions I've been getting a little bit recently is about the Gospel of Judas. Now, the Gospel of Judas is a uh, pseudo-gospel. That is, it's not, it's not written by Judas. Uh, it doesn't even claim to be. It's written by members of a sect called the Gnostics. Uh, Gnosticism is like a bit of a hybrid religion, uh, with Christianity draped over um, pagan religion uh, and philosophy. Uh, flourished in the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD, uh, and there were many writings associated with the Gnostics. Uh, some of them wrote in the 2nd and 3rd centuries about things that were purported to have happened in the time of Christ, because what they'll do is they, they, they use the characters, you see, uh, from, from, uh, from the Gospels to, to, uh, to, 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 to create their, their, their ideas and, and further their, their, their philosophy. Okay? Now, those things didn't really happen. They're fictional, but they're written as if they were characters from the time of Christ. But unlike the Gospels of the New Testament, they're not written by eyewitnesses, not written by people who interview eyewitnesses or had connection with eyewitnesses. Uh, in fact, the Gospel of Judas was written, we're not sure, at least 100, maybe more, 200 perhaps, years after the events. And so it's far too late to be historically reliable. It doesn't tell us about the historical Jesus or about the historical Judas, but it tells us a lot about 2nd or 3rd century Gnosticism. Uh, which, if you're into that, it's really helpful to know. Uh, but for us, we're trying to look at Jesus, uh, and so that doesn't really help us. Um, now, in the, in the Gospel of Judas, uh, for your information, uh, Judas and Jesus are portrayed as Gnostics. The rest of the disciples are ignorant. They worship a different God. Uh, but Judas and Jesus have got this special knowledge. Uh, and Judas is considered some kind of secret hero. When, when he hand, hands Jesus over the authorities, he's, he's doing it at, at Jesus' own request. He's doing Jesus a favor. Because the Gnostics believe that the human form is like a prison. And, G, and Judas is hoping Jesus get, get released from it. And so Jesus says he'll give him a position much higher than at all the other apostles. That he will rule over them. Now, of course, this is not the um, picture of Judas that we get in the Biblical Gospels, or in the book of Acts. The Gospel and Acts are written much closer to the time of the events. They're written by eyewitnesses, or associates of eyewitnesses, and Luke was known to carefully investigate everything uh, from eyewitnesses before putting it down. And, and the apostles themselves were the ones that Jesus had appointed as witnesses. Humanly speaking, they were the ones whose authority lay behind these writings. 
Though, of course, ultimately we know that God's authority stands behind them because they're God's word. And so we can have a lot more confidence in Acts and the New Testament Gospels. Because the Jesus they portray is, is not just the Jesus that's made up like 100 or 200 years later to, 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 to further the, the, the cause of the group, but the, but the historical Jesus, the one who really did live and die and rise again. And who said to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses. Now in today's passage, we're looking to see what Jesus did about Judas, the one who betrayed him, the real historical Judas. But before we do that, let's, let's set the scene that, that we're in. Uh, Jesus has just ascended into heaven. Uh, before, that, before he went, he told his disciples to, to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And once that happened, he said, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the first thing the disciples did was to go back to Jerusalem. Right? They were obedient to Jesus' instructions. Have a look at verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. Sabbath day walk is just the distance that you're allowed to walk on a Sabbath day according to Jewish traditional law. Uh, and that's about one kilometer. And so they walked back to Jerusalem. And when they got there, verse 13, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. It might have been the same room where they had the Last Supper. We don't know that for sure. Uh, but there they are, back in their room, um, the disciples without their Lord. It must have been a little bit like after Jesus died, huh? when they were together, wondering what would happen next. Though this time, of course, fear had turned into confidence, and sadness had turned into joy, uh, despair into eager expectation of what would lie ahead, and the difference would simply have been this, that they had seen the risen Christ. He had taught them about all the Old Testament had, had said about himself. He had given them their instructions to proclaim the gospel. He had, he had promised them the Holy Spirit, which would empower them to, to continue his work as servant. And they would be the beginning of the new Israel, the, the restored Israel. Through them, God's people will be regathered and, and, and restored, the new people of God. But there was one problem. See, Jesus had chosen 12 apostles. And he'd done so quite deliberately. Remember, there had been 12 tribes in Israel. And so the number 12 had come to represent the completeness of Israel. You may recall that about 900 years beforehand, there had been a terrible split between the north and the south, and two tribes in the south versus ten tribes in the north, and, and both groups quite separately in the end had been taken to exile because of their disobedience. But God had promised restoration. The time would come when he would rebuild the nation. And so the number you talk about when you think about Israel as a whole is not two, not ten, but twelve. And Jesus deliberately chose twelve apostles. Not ten, not fourteen, but twelve. Now how many apostles were there in the upper room? Count with me, verse 13. Those present, second half of verse 13, were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Eleven. Now, that's a problem, isn't it? Judas, his chariot, had betrayed Jesus. 
He brought soldiers and officials to a quiet spot in the middle of the night where they knew they could find Jesus and arrest him without the protection of the crowds. And then later we read from Matthew's Gospel that regretting what he'd done, he committed suicide by hanging himself. And so now he was dead. And there were eleven disciples, not twelve. God was about to restore Israel. He was about to cause them to be the, the nucleus of the new people of God, but there's only eleven of them. How could eleven apostles represent the people of God? Now, we don't know whether they realized that problem at the time or not. Um, what they did know was the importance of prayer. And so what, that's what they did when they went to the upper room. As they waited for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be fulfilled, they, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. Verse 14 tells us they all joined together constantly in prayer to get along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And they knew they were dependent on God. The fact that they, that they were already promised the Spirit and didn't stop them from praying, they, they literally devoted themselves to prayer. And brothers and sisters, let's, let's make sure that we look to their example. Hmm? We make sure, make sure that we're, the, we are praying, not just individually, but, but as a body. Right? Incidentally, that's, that's one reason why SMAC team is so important, I think. We do lots of things at SMAC team. We do relational building, training for ministry, feedback on the past months, discussing month ahead. And, but one of the important things we do together is pray. Uh, it's part of, of what we do as a, as a ministry team. Now, of course, that's not the only time we pray together. We pray together in church on Sunday mornings and evenings. We pray in cell groups. We pray together one-to-one. So I'm not saying, you know, if you can't make it a smack team, you've failed in your Christian life or anything like that. Right? Um, but what I do want to do is actually encourage you, as it is possible for you, to be making time to pray with others in our congregation. Right? Make it part of your life and ministry. Make sure that we're people of prayer. The apostles, they devoted themselves to prayer. And they weren't doing it alone. Remember they were doing it with verse 14, the last bit of verse 14, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Right? These women are the ones who had come to uh, come with Jesus from Galilee, come down to Jerusalem. They'd seen him crucified. They'd also been the first people to know about his resurrection. Uh, they'd gone to the empty tomb that first Easter Sunday and, and been told by the angels that he was risen. And there they were in that, in that upper room as well. And then there was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, his brothers who had previously been antagonistic to his ministry. Now they were believers because they'd seen him after his resurrection. But it's not just them. There's, there's many others. Those were singled out, I think, because Theophilus, who this was, this was written to, would have, would have met them before in Luke's Gospel. And there were other believers who joined them in the upper room, at least from time to time, because when the next scene opens, in verse 15, um, uh, Luke describes the group as numbering about 120. And praying wasn't the only thing they did. They must have been searching the scriptures as well. Because when Peter stood up in the group to make recommend of course of course of action, he based it on his study of the scriptures. And so it was after much prayer and after studying the Old Testament that Peter makes his speech. That's Peter's speech since in from, uh, uh, from verse 16. Luke gives a summary of it here. Uh, Peter starts off by reminding the gathering of what happened to Judas. And he tells them that what happened to Judas and to Jesus 
wasn't something unexpected as far as God was concerned. Judas, Judas did something that was awful. And he was responsible for his actions, but it never took God by surprise. The Holy Spirit, through David, had spoken about it in Scripture. Verse 16. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Even, is it clear from the back? Do I need to increase the volume a little bit? Or, clear? Okay. God knew that Judas would betray Christ. He was even part of his plan. Of course, that does not in any way negate the fact that Judas was responsible for his actions. Just like we are. Judas, he was one of the apostles, shared in their ministry. And yet he chose to serve as a guide for those who would arrest Jesus. He was a betrayer, a turncoat. And yet, even then, he fulfilled the scriptures. In a few moments, I will look at some other parts of the scriptures that, that, he, uh, that he fulfilled. But before we get there, we're given a bit more information about Judas. Now, most of our Bible translations open a bracket at the beginning of verse 17. Um, there are no brackets in the original Greek. Yeah, so you have to work out yourself whether there should be a bracket there or not. Okay? I actually think if we have brackets, we should put it in verse 18, not verse, verse, uh, beginning of verse 19, not verse 18, but that doesn't matter. Okay? It doesn't really matter whether Peter's speaking or Luke's explaining. If you ask me, I think Peter's speaking, but whatever it is, uh, I think he's, he's telling the group that Judas came under the judgment of God. Okay? Let's read verse 18 and 19. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. This is good horror movie kind of stuff, isn't it? And everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, a few months ago, someone in our congregation asked me another question. He asked me how this fits in with what we're told in Matthew about uh, Judas hanging himself. Oh, the answer is that Peter's not telling people about how Judas died, right? They all knew that. He's reminding them about what happened to Judas afterwards. You see, what's important for his argument here is that, right? Because to the Jews, what happened is a sign of God's judgment on him. Right? Let me show you a passage in the Book of Wisdom, right? also known as the Wisdom of Solomon. Uh, it's written about a hundred years before Christ. It's a popular Jewish book. Jewish book right? It's uh, part of the Apocrypha. Uh, which means it's good and profitable for reading, though it's not part of God's word. Uh, and it's useful to us here, even though it's not part of the Old Testament, because it shows how the Jews at the time were thinking about this. Here's what it says uh, in Wisdom chapter 4, verse 17 to 20. For they, it's, it's, it's talking about the wicked. It says, For they see the death of the wise men, do not understand what the Lord intended for him, or why he made him secure. They see and hold him in content, but the Lord laughs them to scorn. And they shall afterward become dishonored corpses and an unceasing mockery among the dead. For he shall strike them down speechless. Another translation for he shall strike them down is he shall burst them puffed up, speechless and prostrate and rock them to the foundations. They shall be utterly waste and shall be in grief and their memory shall perish. Fearful shall they come and the counting up of their sins and their lawless deeds shall convict them to their face. Now, Peter used some of those ideas there to talk about Judas. Right? Look carefully at the verse in front of us. Uh, verse, uh, verse 18. 
Well, the word translated fell headlong, right, simply means became prone. Became prone. That is, the picture is of someone who becomes prone. That is, you, you, they come to the point where they're lying with their face on the ground. If their front is flat on the ground. You know what I mean? Became prone. Okay? Uh, and so the picture that, 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 that Peter paints is of Judas lying there. His body swollen up. His guts spilled out of his belly. Right? His body decomposing on the field. The most dishonorable state. It's a picture of the judgment of God that, that he was receiving on the other side. Now, how he got to be like that, Peter, Peter doesn't tell us. Right? Some people suggested that, you know, he got there when the rope he was hanging himself eventually snapped. It's possible, we can't be sure that that's the case or not. That could be someone took him down and desecrated his body. Might have been taken away for burial and then got interrupted. I don't know. No end to the possibilities. We, we don't know. What we do know is that he didn't get a proper burial. He was dishonored and disgraced, even in death. For even in death, he continued to face God's wrath for his awful betrayal. And so, in light of Judah's fate, Peter now goes back to cite the Old Testament references that speak of him. Verse 20. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, and that, that there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Now, if you follow the little footnotes in the Bible, those of you who are very familiar with this, uh, please bear with me okay, while I explain it to others. Now, if you follow those little footnotes, you see, they'll, they'll tell you where to find that citation in the Old Testament. Right? If you're using the church Bibles, you see at the end of that, where it's supposed to be deserted, let, no one, let there be no one to dwell in it. You'll see a little A there. Then you go down the bottom. And you see Psalm 69, verse 25. Right? And then we're going to look up that psalm in a tick. At the end of, the, end of that verse, is, may another take his place of leadership. You see a little B there. You go down the bottom, and you see Psalm 109, verse 8. Uh, and you see that that's what uh, Peter's referring to. So this is also very useful. So you keep your finger in Acts 1, and we scroll back now to uh, Psalm 69. Okay, Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 25. That's on page 413. Okay. Now, the first thing you notice as you're looking at the psalm is that it's a psalm of David. Right? You see that from the heading. For the director of music, the tune of lilies of David. Right? Now, if you look at the... It's... Let me just put that in there. Okay. In every other book of the Bible, right, the headings are not part of the text. Right? So when you come and read the Bible in church, don't read the headings, because it's not part of the text. It's just put there by the publisher to, to help us you know, find where we are. Sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. Accept right? um, when you're reading a psalm. Right? Because in the psalms, the headings are part of the text. Right? Because in the psalms, it comes to us that way. And so we read them and we see that this psalm is a psalm of David. Now remember that David was God's king. God's chosen king. He was the leader of his people. He was God's anointed one. Anointed one means Messiah. Okay? Or, in the Greek, Christ. And so, David's kingship was meant to be a shadow, a model that pointed forward to the kingship of Christ. And since David was God's king, God's instrument of rule on earth, then David's enemies were God's enemies. And God's enemies were David's enemies. 
See, that's the perspective we need to understand when we come to the Psalms that, that call down God's judgment on his enemies. And so it's because they're God's enemies, rebels against him, against his rule, against his king, that David says this about them in verse 22 onwards. May the table set before them become a snare, may it become retribution and a trap, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them, let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in their tents. That's the verse that, uh, that Peter quotes. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those who you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime and do, let them, do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. Peter says, look, this ultimately refers to Judas. Okay? Because Judas, he was the enemy, the rebel, the betrayer, the one who turned against the Messiah, God's King. He is the, he is the rebel par excellence. He's the, the number one rebel against God's king. Right? His place would be deserted. That no one to dwell in it. In other words, he would die. Going back to Acts 2, the next psalm that Peter quotes, that was our Old Testament reading, Psalm 109. Now, if we looked that up as well, we would see that that was also the psalm of David. And once again, David calls upon God to bring judgment, his rightful judgment, his righteous judgment, on his enemies, the enemies of God's Messiah and God's people. Okay, uh, we remember it, didn't we, from from our from our, from our reading earlier? Uh, it was it was pretty terrible. Uh, it's not one of those psalms that you you know put a verse in your greeting card or something like that when you when you when you send it. Uh, among all the curses that he calls down on the wicked men, uh, Peter picks up one that most applies to Judas in this situation, which was verse eight of Psalm 109. He says. May his days be few, and may another take his place of leadership. Now, Peter's quote of, from Psalm 109 has already been fulfilled in Judas. Uh, sorry, in Psalm 69, it's already been fulfilled in Judas. But now this quote from Psalm 109 is yet to be. Well, half of it has, may his days be few, but the other half is outstanding. May another take his place of leadership. And so Peter reasons it's right and proper for someone else to replace Judas as apostle. Because that's what happens to those who rebel against God's king, according to the Son. It's necessary the scriptures must be fulfilled. But, who should get it? Well, remember we saw last week that the job of an apostle was to bear witness to Jesus. To, to be an eyewitness who can tell the world that, yes, we saw the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. It all happened. Remember how Jesus said to them, you are my witnesses. And so Peter knows that in order to be one of the twelve, they have to be a witness. And so he concludes his speech by telling the 120 in verse uh, 21 of Acts 1. He says, therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Well, his argument won the day. A new apostle had to be chosen. And so the group agreed with Peter. and They looked to see who would fit the criteria. But it had to be someone who was close to the apostolic band. Someone who was with them from the time of John's baptism right to the end after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because if Jesus wasn't an apostle to be a witness, he would have to have someone like that. 
who saw it all. So let's, let's find the person. So they went around, and they did. The only problem was they found not one person, but two people who would fit that criteria. And so both their names came forward. Verse 23. So they proposed two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Now what are they going to do? They've conducted due diligence. They've shortlisted two candidates. Nothing between them. Both these men qualify on strict criteria based on the commands of Jesus himself. They should be witnesses. So one of them must be Jesus' choice. But which one? How do they know? What do they do? Let me tell you what they don't do. They do not take a vote. Because the church is a theocracy, not a democracy. Jesus heads the church. We don't. And an apostle is a representative of Jesus. Not a representative of the people. Apostle of Jesus Christ means someone sent by Jesus Christ, not someone sent by the church. Apostle of the church is someone sent by the church, but we're not appointing an apostle of the church here, we're appointing an apostle of Jesus. So you can't vote in an apostle of Jesus. It's got to be chosen by Jesus. The church cannot appoint an apostle of Jesus. Jesus must do that. And since there were only two candidates for the job on the criteria that Jesus gave, and only one job, then they must call on Jesus to decide. And so that's what they did, verse 24. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belonged. And then, trusting that Jesus is Lord and God and in control of everything, that nothing was left to chance but in his hands. Verse 26. Then they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias. And he was added to the eleven apostles. We don't know how they cast lots, really. Whether it was by rolling dice or... Sticks or stones or, I don't know, but it doesn't matter, isn't it? It's the kind of thing where superficially chance is important, right? Except that chance is actually under the sovereignty of God. Uh, back in the Old Testament, in Proverbs 16.33, we read that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, casting lots was there in the Old Testament. Uh, most of the Old Testament, the vast majority of the Old Testament references to it was in the context of dividing up the land of Israel among the twelve tribes and the various clans when they got there that, 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 that God gave them. Lots were also used in the Old Testament for rostering people for various responsibilities in the temple. Priests, and musicians, and gatekeepers. Um, so casting lots was a reasonable way in Old Testament time of making sure there was a fair result under the sovereignty of God. And so the apostles, what they did, they narrowed down the choices the best they can, and they prayed to the sovereign Lord Jesus, the king who ascended into heaven and rules the world, and then they cast lots. And the lot was fell on Matthias, and he was accepted as one of the twelve apostles instead of Judas. 
So that was our passage. As we think about this passage, I think there are three mistakes. Well, there's more than three mistakes, but there are three mistakes we're going to talk about anyway that we could make in interpreting and implying it. Okay? First mistake we could make is about this last one. Okay? That is, we could use this as a model or an example of how we should make decisions. Okay? Try and throw the dice or flip coins right, to find out God's will for us. Now it might say, Lord, don't know if I should marry my boyfriend Abeng or not. Right? So let me flip a coin. Right? If it lands on heads, I'll marry him now. If it lands on tails, I'll marry him later. If it, if it lands on the edge and balances there, then I won't marry him. Right? Well, let me say this very clearly. This is not set up as an example for us. I'll tell you why. In all the decisions that we make, we make these decisions because God has given us the responsibility of making them. He's given us his laws, he's given us guidelines, he's given us wisdom, he's given us each other to help us work it out, and he gives us responsibility for making the decisions. So in the example of, let's take an example just now, okay? You're thinking of Abeng, okay? Well, what, what does God say about it? We, what we know. We rule him out, we'll rule him in, okay? If you're a woman, you've got to say, oh, is Abeng a man? Okay, because you want to marry someone of the opposite sex what God says, and then you've got to ask, is he available? Right? Is he, if he's already married, then he's not available, and you don't have the option of marrying him. And then you ask, is he a Christian? Right? Because Christians can only marry other Christians. So if he's not a Christian, then that counts him out as well. And you ask, is he a blood relative? You know, if he's your cousin, then, you know, sorry, you can't marry him, especially if he's your first cousin. Now, if he passes all those tests, then it's not unlawful to marry him, but so got that bit right, but may or may not be wise, and you need to look for wisdom. And wisdom will teach you to look for spiritual maturity and emotional maturity, signs of the Spirit's fruit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and all other things that you might think are relevant to your particular situation. It's probably also a good idea to marry someone you like, you know, because you have to live with them the rest of your life. Um, and they'll have to live with you as well. But in the end, the decision is yours to make. We can still trust God to be sovereign, to rule our decision-making, but we've got to take responsibility for our decisions. Now, of course, this assumes that you're going to choose your marriage partner, not your parents. Okay? Um, if there's anyone here of that age and wants their parents to choose, uh, well, just make sure they have the same criteria and make sure you have a veto. All right? Um, Either way, it's, it's still a human decision. Right? You know, to simply throw the dice and, and uh, when, when we have the responsibility of making that decision before God, it's wrong because we're abdicating our responsibility. Right? Um, if we've really gone down to Abeng and Akao and they're absolutely the same, nothing between them, or well, if you throw the dice, you're still making responsibility for the choice you make of throwing the dice. Okay? It's not the same God. But that's a different from the choice of the Twelfth Apostle, isn't it? Because that choice was never a decision that came under the realm of human responsibility. Never. The choice of the Twelfth Apostle, unlike any decision that we face today, had to be the choice of Jesus. It could not be the choice of the church. It could not be our choice. 
The appointment of an apostle is unlike any decisions, including, may I say, appointment of elders and other church leaders in the future, was never a decision that was delegated to human beings. Never. And so this decision was a unique one. And this decision-making method was never repeated again in the New Testament, and nowhere are we told to use it, and it's not a model for our decision-making today. It's there because an apostle must be chosen by the Lord Jesus. So that's the first mistake we could make in interpreting this passage. The second mistake is a bit more a theoretical one, because some people think that the apostles made a mistake in doing this that they were misguided, they should have waited for the coming of the Spirit before they made their decision. Because what Jesus had in mind was the Apostle Paul, you see. And now these guys messed up, because God's plan, well, then he calls Paul, now there's 13 apostles, including Paul, and then, well, unless Matthias doesn't really count him as apostle, because there was a mistake anyway, and so the apostles are still 11, uh, plus Paul. Now, there's something attractive about that situation, uh, that, that suggestion, isn't there? Because we know that Paul's an apostle. Um, and uh, Jesus chose him and appointed him in a much clearer way than he chose and appointed Matthias and also gets you past the awkwardness of dealing with the casting of lots you say well they made a mistake, you shouldn't have done that Um, but actually I think it's almost certainly wrong we've already seen there's no problem with the lots Uh, that's an Old Testament practice and uh, not for today Uh, and there's no suggestion in the text that the apostles were doing the wrong thing here No suggestion. There's no criticism of them. There's no hint that what they're doing is not appropriate. There's just nothing against it. Furthermore, Luke, a bit later on in Acts, talks about the apostles as the twelve. And that was even before Paul was converted. So he considers Matthias as an apostle. And he's not just talking figuratively, uh, because before Matthias, uh, when there were eleven apostles in Luke 24 verse 33, Luke calls them the eleven. So as far as Luke is concerned, the appointment of Matthias makes up the twelve. And that's it. Paul was an apostle, yes, but he's in a completely different category of his own. And he's the apostles of the Gentiles. These are the twelve apostles who represent the restoration of Israel. Right? Different category. So, mustn't think then that the apostles were making a mistake when they did this. Okay? It was right. Second mistake. Third mistake. Is it correct here? Is that some people might take this passage to suggest there should be there we are, let me try again. Some people might take this passage to suggest that there should be such a thing as apostolic succession. In other words, if one apostle dies, then you must replace him with another apostle. See? So sh- well, if you think about it that way, then there really ought to be always twelve apostles, shouldn't there? No? Um, but that's not the case, because there are always twelve apostles: Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas. Etc. The reason Judas was replaced was not because he died, it's because he fell away. It's the curse of Psalm 109. Let another take his place of leadership. When James was executed by Herod later, they didn't repeat this whole exercise for him. No, no. He wasn't replaced. He's still considered one of the twelve. So you can't argue an ongoing apostolic succession from this passage or any other part of the Bible because it's not really such thing. And even if there were, just say that there were, which there isn't, but even if there were, there is nobody alive today who could possibly fulfill the criteria that Peter set down here. 
But the twelve apostles are the twelve apostles. Okay, they're no successors in their role of apostles. So we've looked at three mistakes in reading the passage. Let's 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 finish off with with three points to ponder. Firstly, we've been reminded of the sovereignty of the risen Christ. And he is sent into heaven, but he was ruling his people. He is the ascended Lord. He is the, he is the God in whose hand the roll of the dice lies. The decision about the new apostle was, was his alone to make. The apostles prayed, they pondered the scriptures, his instructions to them, understood his plan, and he overruled everything, from the deliberations to the discussion to the results of the casting of the lots. He's the one who chose the replacement for Judas and restored the full complement of the twelve apostles. Right, apostles appointed by the Lord Jesus and him alone, and he appointed his next apostle. Second to think about is that we've seen how the apostles formed the nucleus for the true Israel. That God was forming his new people. He was restoring his people. And he was starting off with these twelve. Israel, as we saw last week, had been Yahweh's witness among the nations. And the twelve apostles, this nucleus of the new Israel, would be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so once they were complete in number, the next thing that would happen is the apostles would receive the Holy Spirit and begin to witness for their risen Lord. And Chris will help us look at that uh, in Acts chapter 2 next week. But thirdly, brothers and sisters, we've been reminded of the terrible fate of Judas. He was one of the twelve, one of the apostles of the Lord Jesus, who lived with him and ate with him and drank with him and served with him, went on mission trips with him, and really was one of the in crowd, in a circle of twelve, a share he had, a part in the apostolic ministry, and yet he fell away to a fate worse than death. And his place was taken by another. Friends, let that be a warning to us all. No one is indispensable, not, not even an apostle. Judas betrayed his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He exchanged him for money. It's only the most twisted kind of thinking that seeks to change him into a hero for this kind of treachery. The Bible tells us that he went to where he belongs. He went to hell. What are you tempted for? To to exchange Jesus for in your life. May not be money, maybe, maybe career advancement, maybe a relationship, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, maybe an adulterous affair, maybe something else. But whatever it is, it's not worth it. Do not give your Lord away for anything. But if you already have, don't despair. Don't be so overwhelmed by your sin that you do not seek a saviour. Don't be like Judas, who instead of seeking forgiveness, went and hung himself. And so faced the death and judgment of God, unforgiven. If you repent, you turn back to Jesus, then he will forgive you. He will. 
He loves you. He died in your place. On the cross, he he took the punishment that, that you and I deserved. He went to where we belong so that we could go where he belongs. He went to hell so we can go to heaven. He died for us so that we could be restored and take our place once again among the people of God. Repent and return before it's too late. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed the Lord and God of all, and that you have indeed been exalted, and that you hold everything in your hands. You are the ascended King, who sovereignly rules. We thank you that you have created your new people, you restored people, and we thank you that you, by your grace, have made us part of that. Help us, we pray, to always be grateful to you for what you've done. To never turn aside. And to never betray you in any way. Keep us faithful to you by your grace and your power until the end. We pray this in your name.